What's missing from contemporary discussions of aesthetics and representation within the natural hair movement? Bert Ash generously offers a response in Twisted, My Dreadlock Chronicles, an unprecedented account of black male identity as seen through cultural perceptions of hair. In this personal story that weaves together the cultural and political history of dreadlocks with the author's own midlife journey to lock his hair, Ash addresses the significance of black hair in the 20th and 21st centuries through an engaging and humorous literary style. Professor Ash's research focuses on late 20th century and early 21st century literature and culture. He teaches and writes about contemporary American culture, primarily post-civil rights movement African-American literature and culture, as well as the Black vernacular triumvirate of Black hair, basketball, and jazz. His first book, From Within the Frame, Storytelling in African-American Fiction, tracks the development of the African-American frame text from Charles Chestnut's The Conjure Woman through John Edgar Wideman's Doc Story. Dr. Bert Ash is Associate Professor of English at the University of Richmond. On behalf of the New Books Network, I'm really excited to have the opportunity today to talk to our listening audience about a really fascinating text that I was lucky enough to receive. We're going to be talking today about the book Twisted, My Dreadlock Chronicle, with the amazing, brilliant, and multi-talented Bert Ash. Bert, thank you so much for giving us some of your time today. Oh, thank you for the, the introduction, and uh, thank you for your time. Well, you know, I'm always yours in literature and podcasting and lovely hair, so let's get it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. I wanted to start by saying, you know, I really enjoyed the book. I loved it. Um, can you talk to our audience a little bit about who the audience is for this book or when you were conceptualizing the project, who did you write this book for? Well, you know, that's, a, that's an extraordinarily difficult question um, because, for one thing, I, I'm, I'm – you know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm an academic. Uh, I, I have a PhD. I'm a college professor, and I admire scholarship. Sort of, you know, bottom line, excellent academic scholarship. But I felt like I, I felt a calling to write a book that would hopefully both be respected as a form of scholarship, but would also be able to reach out beyond the academy to people who might be interested in the subject matter, particularly since black hair is a topic that is, is so, um, so interesting to African-Americans. Uh, I, I wanted to write a book that people outside of the academy could read, uh, as well as those inside the academy who might be interested. The thing is, I... When I think about the question of who the book is for, it's easy enough for me to say it's for people outside the academy and people inside the academy. But a, but a deeper question, since race is part of the book, it's a fundamental part of the book, is the idea that I wrote the book specifically with a kind of black idiom that I was writing through and out of. Um, a, a sort of a sort of black vernacular written tradition 
that in much the same way is similar to, say, a jazz musician or a, a rapper who wants everybody to read their, uh, to listen to their work, and I want everyone to read the book, but at the same time, it's, it has to be inside of a kind of black tradition or else it wouldn't have felt and seemed authentic to me. So while, while on the one hand, like any other writer, I want as many people to read the book and hopefully enjoy the book as possible, I'm kind of stuck between the idea that I wrote the book inside of, of a black tradition and yet at the same time, in terms of readership, there's a kind of implied black reader, but hopefully it's not limited to black readers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to say when I was reading it, one of the things that excited me is I, I love reading things and thinking about how I or someone else might actually teach them. And I'm always mm-hmm. looking for texts that I can teach. And the book is really interesting because you could teach it in a seminar that deals with post-blackness. You could deal with it in a class on black aesthetic. You could teach yep. it in a class that looked at 20th century lit or memoir in 20th century. You could do it in a class on African-American lit. Um, it's a it's a text that um, I see as sort of shifting shape. But as, as a dance scholar, I really appreciate the malleability <laughs> of what you're doing. And I really see it as a testament to the quality of the scholarship. Well, I appreciate that. I, I, I think the world of Books like, uh, I don't know, Zora Neale Hurston's Guys Are Watching God is a book that I've taught in a variety of different contexts. Um, and more recently, a book like um, Paul Beatty's White Boy Shuffle, I've, I've taught in a variety of different contexts as well. And I love those sorts of books that can, you know, be included in a variety of different syllabi, different, different courses and different seminars. Um, <laughs> And I, I, w- I would add a course that deals with um, gender, black masculinity, and, and uh, issues of, of that sort um, might well find, find twisted uh, something that, that would, would be a home on a syllabus like that as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I know that as an academic, as a scholar, you, know, you have this specialty and focus in literature. So... Why did you choose to write this particular project at this time? Um, given the career that you've had, I mean, the text is revealing in some really um, kind of intimate ways, I find. And it made me wonder, what made you choose to do this at this time? You didn't have to do this one. So what made this book a necessity for you? Well, my, it's true that I belong to an English department. Uh, it's true that I have have done some scholarship on written uh, text, but as an American Studies PhD, I I really don't privilege written texts above uh, cultural texts. You know, for me, the you know me reading a book and me reading Black Hair is pretty much the same thing. So. I was was I was interested in, and I've I've long been interested in in uh, in black hair as a, as a sort of site for intellectual contemplation and artistic contemplation for that matter. Um, I wrote my first 
I published actually the first essay that I ever published back in 1995 or so was on black hair. And I always knew that there was a black hair book inside me waiting, ready to come out. I didn't think it should come out pre tenure. <laughs> I, I felt like it might be a good idea to wait until, you know, the, the, the tenure decision was, was done. And, uh, and that I was was an associate professor, and then once that happened, I just really wanted to to wrestle with some 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 really nettlesome issues uh, that I saw out there, and yet at the same time, I wanted to play with form. Uh, I'm really interested in autobiographical texts. Um, this new book by uh, by Margot Jefferson, uh, Negro Land. Is is mm-hmm. you know that's that's wheelhouse stuff for me. You know I love I love that book. Um, Coates's uh, Between the World and Me, while quite a bit more political, because sort of explicitly political than than my work, it also takes a kind of first person stance and explores an issue in a way that we get to not only think about the issue. But get to think about the way that the teller, the the thinker. Um, is engaging with the issue. And I really, really love that sort of work. And I knew I wanted to participate. I just didn't, I didn't know exactly how uh, until, you know, I decided to lock my hair and was keeping a journal and sort of realized after a while it might be something I might want to share. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate you for sharing that because it gets our listeners to, thinking about some of the more distinguishing features of this this shape-shifting book that you've, you know, given birth to here. Um, I'm moved by how you situate your experience within this kind of larger narrative of black vernacular culture and hair politics. So yeah. it makes me want to ask you, you know, what do you, what do we learn from this particular glimpse at black male identity? What is it that you would like for us to know about thinking through the complexities of black male identity in this, in this context? Well, the first thing is, I suppose the main thing is, since I'm so interested in black hair as a, 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 a fascinating, uh, vivid and, and complicated cultural text, is that, doggone it, black men have black hair too, <laughs> you know? Um, it, it's, it's, a little, it's a little frustrating that black hair, when I, if I was to say I'm really interested in black hair, I would imagine the overwhelming majority of people that hear that would have silently and automatically include the word female in front of black hair even though I didn't use the word because right. there's so little work on black male hair out there. And I really felt like it was, it was a, it's an unfortunate situation where as, as wonderful and complicated and, uh, and difficult and thrilling it is to read work about black female hair. And I do it all the time. Um, I, I think that there needs to be more black male exploration of black male hair. 
so that was that was a key thing that I was 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 interested in because as as you saw in the in the book, the kinds of vulnerability and uncertainty and uh, concern that is like par for the course for black females when, say, for instance, they move from, you know, straightening their hair to the big chop and then to uh, natural hair, you know, black men have the same sorts of issues. It's just that nobody's talking about it in public. And mm-hmm. I, I, I really, really wanted to have both an examination of black hair as well as a kind of subtextual conversation about what it means to be a black man and to talk about black hair in ways that uh, that is, is to me just as complicated and just as contrary and, and just as difficult uh, and just as thrilling as when talking about black female. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it makes me think about, um, I locked my hair on my 21st birthday. Uh-huh. And at the time, you know, I was an undergraduate student. I was a student leader. I was very popular on campus. I had recently won homecoming queen at my school. And I remember those days when um, people would walk up to me and tell me how unattractive it was, Ooh. how, you know, I was never going to get a date with that hair, Um how I was ruining what good looks I had by choosing to wear my hair in a particular way. Dang. And, and it these was are, really... These are, these are supposedly friends of yours, I'm, I'm guessing, right? Oh, mostly friends. But then, you know, it amazed me, too, how my body had become public property. So you had mm-hmm. a lot of who would come up to me in restrooms and tell me things about how I should look. But oh, yeah. I have to when I mine those memories, a lot of the people who were complimentary very early on were black men. And years later, when I moved to Philadelphia to work on my doctorate at Temple, um, I was getting my hair done at a natural salon in the city. And one of the stylists who took care of my hair for years was a black man who was a loctician. And I... Uh remember the level of care um, and attention that he would give to my hair, not just because I was a client, but because um, there was an obvious appreciation for my hair and and how affirming that felt. You know, reading the book, it made me want to immediately wave a magic wand and create more spaces for black men to get together and talk about Yes. Like, oh, they need to get together and talk about this hair thing. Because, I mean, it made yes. me think about everything from, you know, James Brown and his signature conk to, mm-hmm. you know, black men in the military being forced to comport their hair in certain kinds of ways yes. to uh, black men that I knew who uh, struggled with all kinds of scalp issues from the constant cutting of their hair. Um, hmm. I was like, ooh, brothers need a space to get together and cry and talk about this stuff because... <laughs> <laughs> well, I certainly love the fact that my book prompted that sort of thought in, in, in you. Um, I I would love that as well. I think that would be really, really interesting. Uh, here's where that conversation is not likely to happen. 
mm-hmm. at the barbershop, you know? Right. Um, right. Right. For one thing, it's so so fantastically dedicated to cutting for completely understandable reasons. I'm not saying necessarily that it it shouldn't be dedicated to cutting, but it, it's unfortunate that 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 space exists, that site exists for black homosocial exchange, and has historically, as you well know, have, has existed for that reason. Um, but a site, a sort of regular you know, a regularly attended, you know, week in and week out place where black men could come and share about their <clears throat> their hair and it not be about cutting. Mm, it's a tougher spot. That's a tougher question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would be nice. It, 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 listen, I, you know my brain is already thinking, okay, so we need to find some way across the country to get – Brothers together to read your book and facilitate these discussions because because it just makes me feel like there's probably a lot of unvoiced um, pain, a lot of unvoiced frustration. And, you know, when I look at my black male students today, a lot of them are growing their hair out um, Mm -hmm. in all different kinds of ways. There's afros, there's locks, there's, you know, it might be faded around the sides with twists on the top. I mean, Young men are doing lots of different things with their hair, but I don't know that they're talking about it. You know, yes, you're so right. In safe spaces with each other, so it's one thing to have sort of a politics of style that we can see, but particularly in Black communities, we always know that there's something around or facilitating that politics of style. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the thing is. There wouldn't be, and as you point out, if you compare the variety of black male hairstyles in the present day, or really for the, the, the entirety of the 21st century, and you compare that with any singular moment in the 20th century, mm-hmm. it, there's no comparison. And it's, it mm-hmm. just defies all belief that you could have this sort of variety and not think that there could be an accompanying conversation. There's too much innovation for there not to be thought about it. The problem is all we have is internal thought about it and no conversation about it at all. And that's, that's just tragic. It seems to me. Um, and it, at least in, in part, one of the reasons I, I wrote this book was to, to hopefully kick off just such a, a sort of conversation and who knows whether it'll happen or to what extent, but you know, I did my small part. <laughs> it makes me want to ask you, I know that with any writing project, there are challenges. So what were the particular challenges that you faced putting this project together? Um, was it about figuring out how much of yourself to reveal? Um, how did you work through those challenges in order to ensure that now we have this, fascinating books that we can access? Well, uh, two things. One, the, by far and away, the biggest challenge was the time. It took me 15 years to actually get this thing to print. Um, mm-hmm. From the time that I had the rough draft of my journal to the time that it got accepted for a, for a book contract. And I definitely didn't want it to take that long, but it did take that long. Um, you know, in terms of the, revel- the, the, the revealing nature um, I read a book by David Shields 
called Black Planet. Uh, I don't know if you've read it. It's terrific. It's it's the the subtitle is Facing Race During an NBA Season, and mm-hmm. it came out in oh actually I've got one here. The, the year was 1999, right about the same time that 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 I got locked. And it's a it's a first person exploration of race in the NBA from the position of a white guy who is a fan of the Seattle Supersonics. And he is absolutely relentless in his insistence on sharing everything that he was thinking, no matter how shameful, everything that he did, no matter how embarrassing, everything that he thought about, no matter how politically incorrect. The great thing is, A, it makes for thrilling reading, but B, I discovered, and I've read subsequent things where it, it, I think this has been borne out, if you're a first-person narrator and you're talking about yourself and you are similarly fearless in terms of sharing what you were actually thinking about, even if it might be personally embarrassing or or um, or sort of intimate. Instead of the reader being repulsed by that, it's been my experience that the reader actually is more likely to nod his or her head and say, "Ooh, I thought I was the only one who felt like that." <laughs> you know, I thought I was the only one who who uh, who had these sorts of issues because we all have them. It's just that we're all grown-ups and we all know how to comport ourselves in public and nobody wants to talk about it. I get that. And I, look, I'm not extremely revealing of my innermost thoughts when I'm at a dinner party or, you know, out to eat either. But if, in fact, you build it into the narrative in ways that is authentic and real, then it it somehow taps into our sort of our sort of shared humanity on the part of not just my experience as a guy who's trying gamely to lock his hair and dealing with all of the things that come with that, but the reader who may or may not have anything to do with locking his or her hair, but have a whole bunch of stuff going on besides that we all kind of have to deal with. It's just that we're, we've been socialized as adults not to talk about it. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but in terms of how much I wanted to share and how much I didn't want to share, I was like, you know what? I'm going for it. I'm just going to throw it all out there. It's all real. I'm not making anything up. And wherever it takes me, it's going to take me. The one thing, you know what the one thing that I struggled with? <laughs> I'm excited. I, tell us, tell us. I, <laughs> I don't know if you noticed when I was talking early in the book about my brown robot phase and how I was raised to be a little achiever and I listed all of the stuff that I did when I was a kid. Yeah, I I struggled so hard about whether I actually could include that I took accordion lessons as a child. <laughs> that was that was the hardest thing because then, I mean, look, I, I'm I'm a brother just like anybody else. Who wants to admit that one of the most uncool instruments on mm-hmm. earth is something that you actually took lessons to play? You know, but I have to say, (laughs) you know, but I have to say, and this is a testament to the point that you just made. When I read it, I 
I, I felt it just made me feel endeared to you. Because I could imagine this little brown boy with his accordion, (laughs) or as my grandfather would have said, on his squeeze box. (laughs) (laughs) It's those those things that no one would ever imagine that sometimes are those touch points. You know, I always tell my students the stuff that made me terribly uncool as a child and as a teenager are the things that make me shockingly interesting and well-prepared to be a professor. So, Ding, 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 ding. Absolutely. I love it. So, you know, we have to, we have to deal with both of those things. Yep. Um, what's been the biggest surprise for you in terms of the reception or response to the work so far? Anything happened well, that we hadn't, didn't, didn't, you know, um, perceive to happen or anything happened that really surprised you? Um, two things. Um, well, for, for one thing, the reception has been terrific. The reviews have been, have been marvelous. And uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't ask for a, a, better, uh, a better reception on that part. Um, I was, I, I didn't discover until after I published the book two two things in particular. One was, um, as you, as you know, since you read the book, I don't talk that much about people asking to touch my hair or touching my hair in ways that is unwanted. And the reason I don't talk about that is because it never happens. It never happens. It never mm. happens. Nobody asks to touch my hair, and nobody just walks up and sticks their hand in my hair without my permission. And I didn't realize, because it never happened to me, I knew it was an issue for black women. I had no idea how much of an issue it was. And it didn't realize, it didn't redound to me until, you know, after I published the book and, and started to hear that it, it's got to be an, an age thing and a gender thing. I was 40 years old when I locked my hair. And I'm a man. And the fact that I was, and I'm an older man has to be the, the only reason that makes sense to me as to why it is that no one ever accosts me, and yet women, that's their, like, the number one complaint. That's been a surprise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The I other thing. Say, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, go ahead, please. I, I have to say to that, it just. Hearing you say that, I, I, I wondered because I noticed that that wasn't, you know, a part of the, the, the narrative. And, I mean, I've had so many people touch my hair without asking. It's like par for the course at this point. Yeah. Um, like my, locks are, my locks are so long. My locks are waist length. They're very long. So mm-hmm. um, I don't know if the length intrigues people or what it is. I mean, it's been a part of my life for so long. Most days, apart from, you know, styling it or grooming it, I'm not really thinking about my hair, but other people right. are, right? Yep. And I remember yep. having a particular experience when I was in a grocery store. I was at the checkout. And all of a sudden, I could feel something in my hair. And when I turned, this older white woman had both of her hands in my hair, both of her hands, like, deep into my hair. And um, I was angry. I was frustrated. And I tried to explain to her, you know, that that was not acceptable. You don't go around touching other adults. But she was just, 
you know, I've never seen anything like that in all my life. Her fascination somehow mm. superseded my right to have any kind of body autonomy. And I think because, you know, I'm young and I'm short. I'm only five feet tall. Uh, so I'm this <laughs> this little woman with this hair that somehow makes people think coming to touch me is is okay. And it's it, right. it's really frustrating. It is frustrating. And I noticed that that wasn't a part of your story. And I thought, is he purposely leaving it out, or does it not no. happen because he's a guy? Yep. I'm so glad that you yeah. raised that. That's it. Well, look what what I wish if I had known that it was as big of an issue as it is. I had a sense that it was a big issue. I didn't realize that it was as big an issue as it was. If I had known, I would have built that into the text, but I would have built in would have been the absence of me having that happen. But I didn't even realize that that, that was the case until the book came out. Uh, the second thing that has been a, a bit of a surprise is that the the, the whole Spelling of dreadlock or even using the word dread is is an even bigger issue than I thought it was. That's what I meant about build, building something into the narrative that I know is an issue and me dealing with it. Uh, that chapter, I don't know, two-thirds of the way through the book called Against Dreadlock, where mm -hmm. I push back at the idea that, that using the term dreadlock is a bad idea or spelling it with an A is just, you know, an abomination. Um, but the extent to which that is an issue, I kind of didn't even realize. And I thought it was a big issue. It's an even, even huger issue than I thought. Uh, and if, yeah. I, if I had known it was that big of an issue, I'd have gone in even harder and, and just like gone in even, even longer. Um, but, you know, at least I had my say. Yeah. Yeah, at least you, you entered that conversation that is a a big and, and ongoing, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, a big and ongoing one in, in, in our community. Um, I really appreciate the fortitude with which you um, continue to press through and bring this project to light. It does make me want to ask, you know, what's been the response of your colleagues who perhaps, you know, know you best for doing a different kind of work, you know? Um, what has been the response of folks around you who know you as, you know, the literature scholar who then steps forward and, at least in my perspective, is still doing literary scholarship in the right. text, but in, a, but in a different way? Yeah. Um, well, I've been, as, at least in part because I was working on the book for so long, uh, I've been at the University of Richmond since 2004, and I was was working on the book back then. So they knew that I was working on this thing. They didn't have any more of an assurance than I did that it would ever actually hit hit the print. It's a, it's a it's an odd duck, and it's got whenever you're whenever you have uh, as many different well, it's this, it's 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 cultural and it's historical and it's autobiographical and it's a kind of a how-to, those books are difficult to place. Uh, and mm -hmm. that's partly why it took so long. Um, but they, they knew. And when it came out, everyone was delighted. Yeah. I've, every, I've, I've, I've had a number of um, moments on campus where I've 
you know, had receptions for it and been invited to talk at the library about it. In fact, next, I think next week I'm going to be at our satellite campus talking about the Richmond aspects of the book. Um, and yeah, there's been nothing but, nothing but, uh, nothing but positive. Look, I, <laughs> I happen to be blessed to work at a department in a department where, um, in the spring semester, uh, spring 2016, I'm going to be teaching three classes. One of them is a black vernacular class solely based on black hair. Another one is a black vernacular class solely based on basketball. And the third one is a seminar on black style. And I never hear a peep from those. I mean, it's all, they're all enthusiastic. They're, you know, do it. If I hear anything, it's, gee, how's that class going? You know, it sounds, sounds really cool. So yeah, there's no, there's been no pushback at all. <clears throat> Just uh, encouragement and, uh, and 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 good wishes. It's terrific. I know I'm glad. Well, I know that everybody doesn't have that situation, <laughs> but I have. Well, I, I, I'm so glad that that has been, you know, the situation, and I I'm glad that you, you know, move forward in giving us this project because, in addition to the the different kinds of topics or contexts in which it might be taught or read. It's also a really wonderful model for other scholars who might be seeking to do a similar kind of book that is all those different things at once. Yeah. Right? So at yeah. a meta level, you know, beyond the content, I'm always talking to my students about content versus skills. And, you know, if you're taking a class and you can't get excited about the content, at least focus on the skills you're developing in that moment. You know, what mm-hmm. does this class give you an opportunity to do or strengthen? And I think beyond the content of the text, um, even if somebody didn't think they were particularly interested in the topics, the way you structured the text where it's this weaving of sort of history and cultural criticism and memoir all in one is a really wonderful model for someone who might be seeking to do that kind of project. So thank you so much for your contribution to the, you know, to the, to the world in this way. Well, I, I, I appreciate it. I'm, I'm, but I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of a quotation that you probably heard from Toni Morrison, where she said, if there's a book you want to read in the world and it doesn't exist, write that book. And you have to write that book. Yeah, you got to write that book. I, it was it was the book. These people who who you know get dinged for listening to their own music or you know watching their own movies. Well, heck, you know this this is what this is what I would want to read <laughs> if in fact it was already in the world. I'd have been happy to read it. It wasn't in the world, so I so I wrote it, um, and it's the very sort of thing that I that I wanted to have. You know coming towards me from, you know, Amazon or, or, or on a shelf in, in Barnes and Noble. If, if somehow me writing this book leads others to write books in a, of a similar vein, I can't wait. I'm, I'm, I would, I would be, I couldn't, I would be delighted to read that book as soon as it actually hits, you know? Um, I just, that's that's I mentioned Negroland earlier, but boy, I tell you, that's just exactly. There, there are four things that I that I appreciate. 
One, an autobiographical stance, a kind of a kind of first person uh, frame and and point of view. Uh, I love books that play with form. You know that that refuse to just uh, have the okie doke as far as what they, uh, how they're going to talk about whatever it is that they're going to talk about. I want it to be about something. I'm not really crazy about autobiographical books that just focus on the individual. I love the idea of having something that you're you're thinking about and chewing on, but chewing on from a from a first person perspective. And the fourth thing is, I love books that undermine a kind of perceived reality. You know, books that that, for instance, memoirs that present the past as if that person remembers everything. Not very happening to me. But when you have a book that that undermines perceived notions of of reality and truth. And mix all four of those aspects together. Whew, you're cooking with gas. I love that stuff, and and I had to try my hand at it, uh, and and was lucky that it uh, it actually seems to work. Well, the project is is really a gift, and you know it it definitely worked. It definitely worked. Can you share with our listeners what's next for you? Do you have any projects on tap that might be of interest to our listening audience? Uh, I do. I'm, I'm, I'm very, very early in uh, in the project, but I'm I'm sticking with. You won't be surprised to hear, uh, black male hair. And what I'm interested in doing is is taking, if I can figure out how to do it, a kind of first person exploration of the, the sort of signpost heads of hair on certain black men in uh, African-American history. Um, I gave a paper in April, excuse me, uh, in New Orleans on Jimi Hendrix's hair um, in <laughs> the, the movie All Is By My Side. Uh, and in March, I'm going to be giving a paper on Frederick Douglass's hair, which I just find fantastically interesting um absolutely that 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 shock of you know sort of white afro with the with the deep side part yes 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 the name of my paper is um parted by lightning (laughs) the hair and the history history and legacy of frederick Douglass's hair um yes i'm interested in um obviously malcolm x who probably has more pointed commentary on black hair than perhaps any other male historical figure due to the sorts of things that he was talking about in his autobiography. Um, People from as far as Jack Johnson to Allen Iverson um, and, and all the way in between um, a lot of Equiano who, who happened to have been a barber. um, I mean, there's, there's so much there and it's going to take, probably a thousand years again and I'm going to be wrestling with form again, but it certainly looks like the sort of project that, uh, that I can settle in for the long haul and, and, and work on and, and find as much enjoyment and nourishment, uh, in the process as I would, uh, with the result. It sounds, 
absolutely fascinating. And I want you to know that no matter how long it takes, us over here at the New Books Network will be here for you. <laughs> That's excellent. Thank you. When the, when the project lands so we can talk to you about this next piece of the journey in your exploration of black hair. So on behalf cool. of the New Books Network, Ash, thank you so much for giving us just a little piece of your time. Oh, the pleasure was all mine. Thank you. You've been listening to an interview with Bert Ash, author of Twisted, My Dreadlock Chronicles, published by Agate Bolden. The book is available now at local booksellers and online retailers. I'm Takia Nuramin, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast from the New Books Network. Thanks for listening, and keep on reading.